Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right hey, hey, with the American news media. I have a lot of positive energy to bring this week. You really do. It's another Little Miss Sunshine, I admit, I potentially do. another Little Miss Sunshine episode where where I am the naysayer and you are the yaysayer. Doesn't happen often, so. Bra- brace yourselves, America. You're, <laughs> you're a, a beam of sunshine from the upper Midwest, from the headwaters of the Mississippi. It's Eliana Johnson, beacon of sweetness and light. And you actually, you are dressed today for summer. You got the white jeans. You got the hair is like flowy. You're like, in, you look like you're in the right zone. I'm ready. You feel it. Are you, did you get a chance, by the way, to be outside during what will, I promise you, be the last habitable days of the year until the fall? Yes, there's a new <clears throat> place near our office building that is kind of like a food court type thing, but nice. And we sat outside oh. with a couple of my colleagues, and it was so nice. Where is your office? Rothman. Oh, Rot. Oh, I forget. I I have recorded there, there even. Oh yes. Yes, yes, um, yes. We sat outside. It was really nice. It is. It is important to know that Eliana's office is like in a building with like defense contractors and Politico. Well, it is Politico is there, but you are in a a uh, in a, a building that looks like it should have. Like the CIA should be operating several front companies in the skyscraper, where so it, it sort of fits for you because that's the energy that you bring. You are the you are the wraith. That is a high compliment. Thank it, exactly. You. Thank you. You you are. There you, truly could be no higher compliment. You are the for general dynamics of. I want to be like the stinger missile. Yes, exactly. Thank that's, you. That's that's where you are, and I'm for it. Front page time. stories that we deemed most important this week or that we had in the document when we opened it either yes, way exactly. however you want to look at that that's how they got in the document okay that's how they got in our old rundown here there we go up first the new york times chris i complained when we interviewed ben smith the former new york times media columnist yeah where um, is in a question uh, can i just before you before you start what, what's going on with ben smith's thing they are hiring people. I actually okay. just listened to Ben on an, on the Jewish Insider podcast <laughs> called It's called Oh, I thought the name was Jewish Insider. No, the podcast, I'm forgetting the name of it right Anti-Semites now. everywhere like they're calling no. it the Jewish Insider. We knew they were controlling the weather. Now they have an insider podcast. <laughs> oh, Limited Liability podcast. I was listening to their their interview which was I see they was put up on Thursday with Ben Smith and they, he is hiring and prepping, and I know from my friends in journalism who he is interviewing, so he is prepping Semaphore for launch. Semaphore? Semaphore is what it's called. I'm sorry, no it isn't. What was it originally called? Semaphore. It was called No, I was soup? joking oh. that they said, oh, it's a word that's the same in a bunch of different languages, and so I was calling it taxi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's really called, is it Semaphore or Semaphore? W- one of them. I don't know. On the podcast, they were calling it Semaphore, so maybe the host got it wrong. Maybe it's intentionally mispronounced. I don't know. Send before, see before. We'll, we'll get Ben back. <laughs> we'll get Ben as back. As he seems to please, be wanting to drum up attention around please pro- it. Please pronounce the name of your thing. All right. I'm sorry for the distraction. Okay. Please tell us. So I had asked him, like, Ben, why doesn't, the, like, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, they're supposed to be competing with each other, and yet mm-hmm. there's this feeling that when one of them screws up, they kind of, they cover for each other as opposed to, like, ex- you know, mm-hmm. competing mm-hmm. with each other and exploiting the weaknesses of the other and he sort of said that he agrees with that and so anyhow I hope I'm not misquoting you Ben but the New York Times I was very excited to see has a long piece on all of the drama that has been consuming the Washington Post and there were some amusing lines but they get inside like basically how is Sally Busby the new editor over at the Washington Post who succeeded Marty Baron how is she going over with staff and I just want to read a little bit from it, and then we can talk about it. In a contentious meeting last week, some staff members told Ms. Busby that she had not yet earned their trust. 
according to several people among dozens in the audience. In another meeting with Ms. Busby on Tuesday, one editor relayed concerns from his staff that being promoted to an editor role seemed an unappetizing prospect at the Post. Ms. Busby responded with an impassioned speech about how an editor's job was to help people do great work and advance in their careers, according to a person at the meeting. And then I laughed out loud at this part. The return to office plan, which Sally Busby is big on getting people back in the office, that upset some employees. At least two people who left the newspaper recently said, one publicly on Twitter and another in an interview, that the policy had been a major factor in their decision to depart. Some have been reluctant to follow the policy, leading Ms. Busby to urge managers to remind their employees to come into the office so i guess that would be what's her name who, who got fired did she get fired she got felicia fired. by felicia, felicia sanmez. yes so you i guess that's felicia sanmez and the two would be well taylor lorenz is still there she's still there but very concerned about covid i just found that the scenes painted here to be sort of hilarious and that I can't really imagine a new boss coming in and and like raising my hand and being like you have not earned my trust well obviously I uh, wouldn't be my first move out of the gate also the highly privileged highly groomed highly o- over appreciated young reporters are you know it's 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 a problem and we know it, but I also and that they're whining about having to go back in the office. It's it's pretty amazing. The, the, but I did I did like the editor saying that it's not that. Yeah, I am not surprised that being an editor at the Washington Post is not a very appetizing proposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Times has a funny thing about the Post, which is the Times does not want to. There's a phenomenon that happens in in college sports, especially it happens in pro sports sometimes where one team believes it is the rival of another team and the bigger, more established team does not want to recognize this rivalry. Uh, It happens WVU and Marshall is the one I'm most familiar with, but there's like Oklahoma state and Oklahoma and this phenomenon that happens where it's like, no, we're not rivals. So for the times when they cover the post like this, they're sort of giving the post credit for being on their footing. Right. And the Times never wants to stoop to the point of saying that the Washington Post is on their level, right? I didn't read that much into it. I mean, the Post is a big national newspaper, and I I enjoyed the coverage. There was a very funny pool report. I really enjoyed the coverage. When Obama went to the Washington Post newsroom, and the I forget which New York Times White House reporter was with Obama as he went to the Post, and it was a surprise visit. And I remember in the pool report, it said the, the the pool arrived in front of a, I believe they used the phrase, Soviet-style architecture office building <laughs> on 15th Street. And it was a, a wonderful dig put in the incredibly ugly old Washington Post building. Whether it was Watergate or the Pentagon, the, the competition back and forth with the Post trying to be on the Times level and the Times not quite wanting to dignify that has been one of my one of the great rivalry non rivalry stories in journalism for a long time. We have to do our Taylor Lorenz tweet of the week. So this started again with a joke. This we have a theme here. Mm-hmm. Okay, Felicia San Sanmez did not like Dave Weigel's joke about women being which was underst- which, which was dumb. Yeah, which is un- understandable. Understandably be bothered. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Dave, I I didn't mind your joke, but okay. So Matt. Iglesias, the liberal commentator, tweeted, Some personal news. I have contracted the novel coronavirus. This was on Father's Day, and he said, Frankly, I think the virus should respect Father's Day more than this. (laughs) FYI, all future typos are due to long COVID. And Taylor Lorenz. Let that go in the spirit of good goodwill that it was mentioned. She let it rip. She replied, I'm glad it's a joke for you, Matt, and that you're lucky enough to get access to great care. But for those who have had their lives destroyed by the virus and who have had loved ones die from or suffer with LC, I guess that's long COVID, it's not funny. Hope you can have a little more empathy, comma, especially today. What was the the thing in Faulty Towers to never mention the war, never talk about the war? Because it would upset the, the John Cleese. Uh, I forget the, the the bit, but never you must never mention the war. And with Taylor Lorenz, it is you must never mention anything. If you say something, she will be triggered and and offended by it. And you would just think: Have you ever thought about not being on Twitter? 
Might not be the right space for you to be. Might not be. Taylor Lorenz, take it from me. You will be so much happier if you just get off Twitter. Well, there was an amazing reply to her yes. by a guy who on Twitter calls himself, you can tell it's someone who Taylor would really get along with. His name is Midwest Gun Dad. Um, okay, so he replies, Hi, Taylor. Can I joke about this? This is me. And there's a picture of a guy with lots of tubes. He's in a hospital, but lots of tubes coming out of his chest. This is me. The first time I sat up after the coma, they had to put me in due to COVID. It nearly killed me four times in the 41 days I was in the coma. You have a choice. Crack jokes or let it destroy your mind. So I say start joking and keep it up. And she actually replies. She replies. There is a big difference between joking about your own condition at your own expense and joking at the expense of others, especially those who are suffering. Sir. Continually minimizing an illness that is still devastating so many is harmful. I encourage you to learn about lateral ableism. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, every week I think, oh, we and should. And then he replies, Dear God, I am a half crippled, fat, balding internet S poster and still more likable than you. <laughs> uh, I, every week I think we should stop talking about She is like the gift that keeps on she giving. Can't, she, she can't. She makes it impossible. She can't, she can't stop. All right. Continuing on the Washington Post drama, my former Politico colleague and, you know, my boss's boss at Politico, John Harris, had a column on the drama that coincided with the Watergate anniversary. So it's like, you know, as they're celebrating this Watergate anniversary, the paper was totally consumed by this petty BS. And so he said, and we'll link the column, but he said one thing that I agreed with and one thing that, that I didn't agree with, but I thought it would be fun to talk about it. So the thing he said that I agreed with was the following. He said, he, he and he's talking about basically managers who whisper their complaints about, you know, woke activists, the young woke activists in their and the rooms. and the pre, and the premise before you get to the the good bit, <clears throat> the premise here is that fifty years ago the Washington Post was taking on the president of the United States in this, in this titanic struggle journalism da 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 da, and now the struggle is 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 inward facing and about sort of a cowardice, a kind of cravenness in being unable to confront strident voices inside their own newsroom. So he says. The other problem is that the complainers often act like they're passive observers rather than people with responsibilities for setting the culture and standards of institutions. Leaders who are afraid of their employees or students or customers rather than ready to confidently engage them are in the wrong job. And I thought that was a good point. And the most, like, uh, the point I thought that was compelling that he made was that the Washington Post did not take action on this Felicia Sanmez thing. She's been she had been doing this stuff for a long time until the sentiment in the newsroom changed. Right. And so they were being led rather than leading. I think and look, good, good leadership. And I have had the privilege to see really good newsroom leadership in my career. Good Leadership is followership to a certain degree. You've got to read the room and know where people are and know how far you can push it. And you have to really be able to read the room and know what where your people are because, you know, you can't it's – it's a very intimate kind of management because when you're dealing with writers who are crazy to begin with, right, we're all nuts because this is the our chosen profession. So there has to be – you really have to have fingertips. But I totally agree with you that the – when behavior gets out of hand, you have to, and, and as they did, send the message like, no, we're done here. The, what, however it makes you feel, we're not doing this anymore. This is the part that I did not agree with. And so, and John writes, the broad brush characterizations about the woke activists traffic in stereotypes or are an example of the overly sensitive sour mindset that the complainers are attributing to woke colleagues. In fact, most of the people challenging institutional leaders these days are doing so on behalf of broadly desirable objectives, not because they have contempt for institutions, but because they are committed to them. I have absolutely not found that to be the case and well, I don't think that the complainers are committed to institutions I or loyal to them. Well at that all. 
That obviously is just some stuff people say. That is a paragraph that you put in. <laughs> that is a paragraph that you put in. Like now, yourself. I would just say that I, you know, the, while I agree with their objectives and much da da da, like so that is the that's the stuff that you put the in CYA. Yeah, that you put in to say, and what you, of course, everyone always forgets. I would just like to remind, take this opportunity to remind everyone. Almost every bad thing that has happened in human history has been a result of good intentions, right? They're all they're all well at Mao, super well intentioned. He just thought that you needed to murder a bunch of people in order to make those intentions come true. So, positive intentions are worthless. I don't care, uh, and and you, but you do have to, you know. People put that. I, I think I I know you admire him, but I think that it's sort of indicative of. John has 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 carved out a niche in his writing, which this paragraph, I think, is indicative of. Well, I actually think it's indicative of the fear of the people in the right. newsroom yeah. <laughs> that he's that he's writing about. And, and and a thing where so there there is I miss Ron Fournier. Ron was very good at the like putting pointing out things that mainstream reporters did not want to talk about. And then he also had uh, high-end CYA skills to be like, but also we should remember that this, the these, you know, these people are very, you know, the wrong people are very bad, or the right people are well-intentioned. So that it's 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 a style of it's a school of journalism. What's Take next? Take us by the hand to our next item. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So you and I both observed that the amount of Ron DeSantis coverage, and I observed the amount of Mike Pence coverage that we have seen of late. Is the you can you can feel 2024 coverage really lifting off? I think part of it has been January 6th, talking about Trump's liabilities, and and this is this has put Trump back. the The primary election stuff we we spent weeks, you know, and you heard me complain about it many times. Every race, every story, it's you you have to see this as a story about Donald Trump, and you're like, you don't necessarily have to. I lived in Alabama this week. Trump de endorsed a candidate who was losing then endorsed his opponent right before she was going to win. You're like, yes, an, another another win. And, I, and you know, the coverage is like, oh, he did it again. Like, if I bet on the St. We'll Louis— We'll tell them what race you're talking about. The Alec, Katie Britt won the Republican Mo nomination. Brooks. Mo Brooks is a sad—of all of the saddest wreckage of their lives stories from the Donald Trump era, uh, Mo Brooks will be, uh, will be on the list— of those individuals who were like, but I sold my soul to MAGA. What do I get? And it's like, well, you get to keep the hat. Well, and the Beacon is definitely going to give Katie Britt and husband an award for the biggest height differential of political it's, couple. It's noted. It's, it's really awesome. Look it, at this. Chris and I are looking at the picture. I think that has to be like a two-foot difference. Well, he was he played for Alabama. Part of the reason that she's successful is he's an Alabama football player he in the state. He is like a hulking I would. I mean, hulking Man. seems strong. He's huge. He's but or not she hulking. Just, he is may, she just tiny. I think. Look she's, how big he is. Well, but he's not hulking. I think there's well, he's a hulking. A, there's an elegant grace. Hulking suggests that he is like a gorilla. I think he's. I think he's probably quite dexterous. An athlete. Uh, he is very large, and she is very adorable and small. Adorable and small. There you go. But anyway, so the, well, here's where I am. Like all my sunshine comes in. I I don't know if these like it, DeSantis profiles. There was one in the Washington Post and one in the New Yorker. I don't know if they were meant to be negative, but I really enjoyed them. Yeah, the the deeper dive on, and this is Tim Craig wrote the Washington Post. Floridians give DeSantis points for his COVID stance. Will it hold? Was a good like a good piece of political analysis. I must say, uh, looking at the at the tension uh, around Ron DeSantis. And there's been good coverage. And then Trump had something to say about Ron DeSantis. So there's been some back and forth to keep it going. The two profiles were different and I thought complementary in that the Washington Post piece, and again, we'll link both of these. The Post piece was about what Floridians think of DeSantis's governance and how he's governed the past three and a half years in Florida. And I just want to quote from it a little bit. Even as they watch crime rates surge in other parts of the nation, Secret Cove, which is a place in Florida, remains largely crime-free. Most residents here remain on sound financial footing, thanks in part to rising home values. 
In neighborhoods nearby, some black voters said they are willing to consider the GOP message this year, especially amid widespread concerns about inflation. The costs are just getting too high, said Ida Lynn, who emigrated from Haiti in 1994. I always vote for the Democrats, but this year I don't know. And it focuses a lot on his response to COVID, which was to keep things open. And then the one I liked more, just because it's more consonant with my the approach I like to take in journalism was mm-hmm. a deep dive about who DeSantis is yeah. in the New Yorker the by Dexter, Dexter Filkins. Filkins. I good. loved it. Um, so Dexter Filkins and Chris and I both um, know DeSantis a little bit. And my sense of him was always that he was not a child of privilege, even though he went to Yale and went to Harvard Law School. My sense of him was always that he came from a uh, middle class background genuinely and that he ha- happened to end up at these elite institutions. And So Dexter Filkins actually goes to the city in Florida where he grew up in, finds his house, knocks on the door, talks to his dad. And the dad actually starts saying, like, I don't want to talk to you because whatever I say is going to be taken out of context, but ends up talking with him. And it is really wonderful. My favorite part was, well, there I have like several favorite parts because it's really good. One of my favorite parts was saying the quiet part out loud, which if you haven't, you should Google DeSantis and his wife because his wife is like a stunning bombshell. So one guy quoted says, he's good looking, this guy says of DeSantis. John Morgan, a lawyer in Orlando who has worked with DeSantis, told me his wife is really good looking. (laughs) (laughs) His family's beautiful. They look like they're from Central Casting. And then... I thought this was really cute from his dad, who gives a lot of insight into what he was like as a kid. The young DeSantis attended Our Lady Lady of Lords Catholic School and then Dunedin High. I think that's how you pronounce it. Dunedin. Dunedin High, where he was a star outfielder. He was focused and motivated, his father said, adding, he didn't get that from me. DeSantis, so his dad was a Nielsen, a salesman for Nielsen, Mm -hmm. and literally went around knocking on doors and trying to sell and then install Nielsen boxes for people. DeSantis scored in the 99th percentile on his SAT and was accepted to Yale, his father said. It's still the thing I'm most proud of. But he didn't like to make too much of it. Everybody wants to brag about their kids, and people ask me about Ron. I try to be modest. It was really cute. It's a good good piece, and it puts important context around DeSantis. I, I think the 2024 coverage is also all this January 6th does drive a lot of it about Pence, especially. And we've seen lots of Pence coverage and a lot of discussion around whether Trump can beat DeSantis and, and how that feud is going to go. I think part of that is also a reflection of the fact that uh, 2022 is pretty boring. 2022 coverage has gotten pretty, pretty boring. It seems like we know how it's going to go. Well, we know how it's going to go. And, of course, what I can tell everyone is something everybody already knows. Republicans are almost certain to win the House of Representatives. And as far as the Senate, who knows? Because the Republicans, are. you probably give them a little edge because of, you know, the wind at their backs. But who knows? And, And that's not going to materially change between now and November. So the political press, so the political press, there's a desire to try to wait until after the midterms are over to start the 2024 cycle. But when it's, when you know, it's probably going to be a blowout. It's hard. It's hard to stay in 2022 when you really want to be in 2024. How did you know that was pronounced Dunedin? You've never, well, number one, I love place names in America, but Dunedin, Florida is a, it's, I don't know. It's a, I don't I bet it's a town of 70,000 people. It's what people for Florida and Texas, what people always forget about Florida and Texas. And I say this as a person who has to study political geography. There are a lot of big places that are that in other states, in other places, would people would think of as large cities. And I forget what it is, but they're like four of the largest city. Like when you put Texas and Florida together, there are these places where like, oh, I didn't know Jacksonville was that big. It's like, yeah, it's actually a huge media market. And if it was in Pennsylvania, everyone would think about it. But because it's in a state with Miami and the Tampa, St. Pete and Orlando. And, and so there's, and Tallahassee's not a small city. Texas is amazing because you're like, you have Houston, which is the third largest city. No, second third largest city in the United States. But then you also have Dallas, which is in the top 10, I believe. And you've got Austin, which is in the top 10, I believe. And you've done those and you're like, wow, this is a state with a bunch of big cities. And then you're like, 
oh, Midland, Texas has, you know, 100,000 people or whatever in it. So they're sneaky. This is why politics in these states is so expensive because it costs, when you have so many major media markets, you got to buy a lot of ads. Yikes on this next item, which is from the Washington Post, USA Today, clean up in aisle five. Mm -hmm. USA Today removed 23 news stories from its website Thursday after an internal audit concluded that the reporter who wrote them misattributed quotes and in some cases may have fabricated interviews and sources. The breaking, this is is still from the Post, breaking news reporter Gabriella Miranda has resigned from the newspaper and could not be reached for comment. USA Today has removed nearly two dozen stories she wrote between spring 2021, that story being TikTok bans milk crate challenge from its app, citing concerns over dangerous acts. And spring of this year, this is my land, I say. These Ukrainian women are among thousands choosing to fight, not flee. So this this raises the long, uh, the longstanding question when you have young reporters who do this stuff because people will do this stuff, right? Jason Blair was not. You think people still know who Jason Blair is? No. Tell them who Jason Blair is. Jason Blair was the fabulous fired from the New York Times. It must have been the early two thousands, right? I, I it was. I, Let's I see when he was. I remember it well because he Jason got Blair. got nailed on a West Virginia story. And he got nailed on the... Re- 2003. He got resigned n- from the newspaper in May 2003. I remember it being while I was in college. And then uh, Stephen Glass at the New Republic was around the same time, I think. And Jason Blair, just as a, as a personal anecdote, Jason Blair got nailed on the story of the POW, the, oh, the, the, the maybe the first POW, first female POW. This is from the Iraq War. And Jessica Lynch... Uh, was this very famous story. And so she was coming home to her family's home in Palestine, West Virginia. And Jason Blair wrote this color, this this scene-setting lead on the story that said the tobacco fields across from her family's home or farm or whatever. And, of course, any human being who's ever been in northern West Virginia knows there are not any damn tobacco fields across the road. This is not what the, the, there's a chemical plant across the road or there's a, a, a an old coal mine or a steel mill, but it is not like. And so Jason Blair, who did not go and was just holed up in his apartment writing this stuff, that's part of how he got caught. But anyway, why was I telling you? that? Oh, the, so the eternal question is, you know, you can't defend perfectly against a reporter making up quotes on stuff like this especially when they're like on the rewrite desk and writing, writing these kinds of stories that have these kinds of headlines. But I guess we would just say, I guess I would just say good, good for USA Today. They caught it. They cleaned it up. But young reporters need edited. They need closely edited. And I, I, I feel bad for Ms. Miranda because she, she will have to carry, like she won't be able to work in journalism and, that's too bad, and I wish that she would have had help to to avoid these kinds of mistakes. What do we got next? Racist love parks? Racist love parks. I forget where I found this or who sent this to me, so if somebody sent this to me and I have forgotten, I apologize. Headline, Vice News, white nationalists want to reclaim nature as a safe space for racists. And I thought, gee, willikers. <laughs> and it is written by someone named Tess Owen. And it is, I I don't know how old of a person Tess Owen is, but this reads like something that a. Do you remember? Do you remember the piece in the Yale Daily News, our our, our greatest uh, our greatest find of the oh, previous daylight year, savings daylight savings time, time. grasses, Yale Yale students hardest hit, yeah. uh, uh, time times change, Yale students hardest hit. It takes a kind of disconnection from human experience and reality to craft a piece like this about white nationalists in the national parks. First of all, you know who likes the national parks? Everybody. Everybody likes the national parks because they're awesome and people like to be in them. You know who enjoys going to Yellowstone? Everybody. It's great. Here's a buffalo. It's fantastic. And the preposterous thing about this story. You got to read from it. Here's the lead. America's white nationalists are once again embracing the great outdoors. (laughs) At first glance, it may seem out of character. 
Wholesome activities like hiking, foraging for berries, and camping seemingly stand in sharp contrast to lifestyles of the basement-dwelling far-right live streamers. And it it gets, believe it or not, it gets much worse from there. And she t- manages to try to tie in, like, actually, you know, the outdoors movement has always been racist because here's something John Muir said, and here's what this was, and you're like, everybody, like, when they talk about how things were segregated in the 19 teens and all that stuff, you're like, yeah, it was bad, bro. Like everywhere. It wasn't just the national parks. It was all of the stuff. It is a awful slander on the national parks. It is a terrible insinuation. And I can tell you this. I, uh, one time I interviewed my, one of my favorite interviews that I ever conducted was with a white nationalist leader. They were having a, white nationalist retreat and mass wedding, which is always, uh, always adds confidence at a park in West Virginia. I forget whether it was a state park or a county park, but they had rented the space there in this lovely pristine spot. And I went to go interview him there because there was, of course, once it was discovered what they were and he was willing to interview me, but you'll like this. He said, you can interview me, but I'm going to interview you at the same time for my ham radio show. So I'd like ask him a question and then he'd be like, well, let me ask you about the Jewish controlled media and why you lie about. And I'm like, my boss, I'm pretty sure is a, a Methodist. I, I don't know. Let me. And so I was interviewed while, while interviewing this guy. Law, it's a long story to illustrate. I don't, there's all kind of bad people who do all kind of bad stuff. You could write us, you could write this story about the national parks and the white nationalists. You could write it about pedophiles love the national parks. You could write it about all, all of the worst people well, in the world. Uh, this paragraph yeah, yeah. is so amazing. Jim Crow segregation policies formalized in 1916 allowed for whites only areas in national parks up until segregation was abolished in 1964. This history has been blamed for the vast racial disparity in annual national park visitorship. National Park Service data from 2020 showed that 77% of visitors to the 419 parks were white, just 6% identified as black. Recent census data shows that 60% of Americans are non-Hispanic whites and 13% are black. So, So we should have... Equal representation, Equal representation of all the races in the national park. <laughs> and then, I love this, a sociologist who'd studied that disparity. <laughs> Somebody's job is to study the racial disparity of national park visitorship. So a sociologist who'd studied that disparity found that many of the black Americans they talked to said they'd encountered racism while visiting a local state park, which seems not well related to this, while others said they were afraid of feeling unwelcome. Here, here's this story is amazing. Here's the here's a, a great example. Here's a, a one you can carry this forward in a lot of things. Where do a lot of black people live? They live in cities. Yes. A lot of black Americans live in cities. And if you were to just substitute in the question of urban residents, right? Who spends more time outdoors at parks? Urban residents, rural residents, or suburbanites? You would find, I would imagine, that the park going rate, though I will say, those the Subaru drivers in my neighborhood, the the, the Tesla based community, they'd love nothing more than getting their dog in the back of their Subaru to ride out to the park. So there may be some put their trade stock up on vegan meatballs from Trader Joe's and roll and roll out to take their their dogs. But I would imagine that the urban rural split would describe just as much of this. Pieces like this that obsess over racial components. What if black people don't want to go to national parks? That's okay, right? That'd be fine. Individual black people, if you're listening, don't feel pressure to go to a national park just because Vice says that you should. You can go to a national park or not go to a national park. It's cool. It's that time. What time? uh, For our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. There actually was a story this week that I have been talking about for days on end. And Chris, you like had pulled out another aspect of it. So we have a kind of joint obsession, even though I think you're still going to do your own. Or are we going to have a joint? Well, no, you no, you have a separate one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. My obsession was, a, I thought it was a case study of 
media bias and how media bias shows up. It was the Coral Davenport piece in the New York Times that was like so long with the headline, Republican drive to tilt courts against climate action reaches a crucial moment. The subheadline is a Supreme Court environmental case being decided this month is a product of a coordinated multi-year strategy by Republican attorneys general and conservative allies. And the entire piece essentially paints the standard political, you know, the involvement of conservatives in the political process to elect judges and press for their favorite outcomes as some kind of like grand coordinated nefarious conspiracy. So she describes it as the product of a coordinated multi-year strategy by Republican attorneys general, conservative legal activists and their funders, several with ties to the oil and coal industries to use the judicial system to rewrite environmental law, weakening the executive branch's ability to tackle global warming. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then she says coming up through the federal courts are more climate cases, some featuring novel legal arguments. Oh my God. Like who this is so dastardly. Cases with novel legal arguments, each carefully selected for its potential to block the government's ability to regulate industries and businesses that produce greenhouse gases. Like, yes, this is how litigation works. You make novel arguments and select cases for their for your ability to win in court. This and then this actually was my favorite quote in the whole piece. Congress has barely addressed the issue of climate change. Instead, for decades, and so this is the thrust of the complaints of conservatives, that this is the job of Congress. It is not the job of bureaucrats at the EPA to pass, you know, lots and lots of regulations. These should be laws passed by elected representatives. So she says, Congress has barely addressed this issue. Instead, for decades, it has delegated authority to the agencies. Why? Why? Because it lacks the expertise possessed by these specialists who write complicated rules and regulations and who can respond quickly to changing science, particularly when Capitol Hill is gridlocked. Well, here's... And the, that's not actually... Th- those aren't the worst parts of the piece. So here's here's what I took. And, and by the way, I want to thank the reader who sent this to me. And it is a piece about this piece from Jonathan Adler, a law professor and a libertarian human who took this piece and broke it down. And here's what he says. Over the weekend, the New York Times published a story on conservative legal challenges. And then from what you mentioned, at least two climate cases are pending before the United States Court of Appeals. This is a quote from the piece. Right. Yeah. The United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which has eight judges appointed by Democratic presidents, nine chosen by Republicans, including three Trump appointees and one vacancy. Says Adler, notice a problem? According to the New York Times, there are 18 seats on the D.C. Circuit Court. Yet, as court watchers know, there are only 11 seats on the D.C. Court. Six of the 11 judges appointed by Democratic presidents and four appointed by Republican presidents. There is one vacancy for which a Biden nominee is pending. And there will be a second vacancy when Ketanji Brown-Jackson takes her seat on the Supreme Court this summer. And a Biden nominee pending for that seat as well. So... The way that they got, the way that Coral Davenport screwed this up, and and by the way, my favorite one that Adler nailed was where she talks about how many how many judges Trump appointed and how many Biden has appointed, and is and says what does she 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 says oh that, she compares she the, says, the yeah she says it compared the number of judges appointed by President Biden sixty eight with the total number appointed by Donald Trump, 231. The proper comparison would have been to the number Trump had appointed at this point in his term, 42. So the it's the piece is shot through with this stuff. Now, here is what... Riddled. Here is what we know. We talked about this before, and this is why the alert reader sent it in, was when you pretend to be an expert in something. So Coral Davenport covers climate change for the New York Times. She wades into legal coverage and not just legal coverage, but the D.C. Court of Appeals is like a special, weird, extra thing. It's like the triple A. It is to the Supreme Court as triple A baseball is to the major leagues. And it's got all this weird stuff and appellate law is different and D.C. circuits different than other appellate, blah, 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 blah. And she didn't know. 
And she had a story to tell. And the story that she had to tell was Joe Biden and the EPA are trying to save life on the planet. And the, this Republican cabal is pushing these judges through. There are, there is evidence. And evi- funding lawyers who are coming up with novel legal arguments to ram their her, preferred outcomes through the courts. Her narrative is not unsupportable or totally unsupported. There's ev- you, there's stuff that's in her piece that's legitimate, like, yeah, okay, this is true. This is, you know, this the change is coming. But she omitted, now, and I'm not accusing of her of doing these things on purpose, but when you are, and this- the, I am. The, no, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, we know, is that the things that you know less about, you are more confident about. And as you learn more about things, you become less, you, you become more circumspect in your opinions. And I think this was a clear case of a reporter who, who did have an agenda for the, had a narrative and an agenda for the story. And because of confirmation bias and other reasons, she, she blew important questions related that, that, complicated and mitigated her storyline. She did not, I'm sure, set out to do that, but that's how implicit bias works. Well, what was the confirmation bias that led her to say there, there were 18 seats on the DC Well, that's circuit. the Dunning-Kruger. That's the not, that's just being an, that's not knowing what you're talking about and pretending to be an expert. That was like, oh, here it is. I looked at the website. It listed the judges, and she was including judges who were senior status. You can't see the air quotes I'm making, but who were senior status who were inactive, right? That they were, st- so, you know, they're still listed for, you know, honorary purposes as a judge, but they haven't heard cases in years. So she didn't know, so she said that. And then the other part about the comparing all of Trump's ju- justices, judges to Biden's judges, that is that it, the telling it that way confirms, that's like, yes, this, this comports with the story that I want to tell, Whereas, as Adler points out, if you tell it the real way, it mitigates the story. So we as humans, and that includes journalists usually, that we have a tendency to see and believe things more readily that agree with our worldview. What is your obsession? Well, it's kind of related to that. I'm glad you asked. So we were talking as we were getting ready to go about the hostile media effect. And we will put in the show notes the scholarly paper from 1982. I have a crush on a social psychologist named Lee Ross, who was at Stanford for a long time. And he was the sort of the, there are people complain about it, but fundamental attribution error, the tendency to, to attribute failings of individuals to themselves or to their group, you know, how they are kind of things. Whereas with your own group or with yourself, you're very forgiving. But he also did, he also was part of the team that, that came up with a hostile media effect. And Everybody should should know about this and read it. In 1982 at Stanford, they did a study, and they took they asked students questions. And in the at the time, the Palestinian the the Leb the Lebanese civil war and the Israeli Palestinian conflict was at a really high point. Right, it was really tense, and there had been a massacre. Uh, undertaken, I believe, by Lebanese Christians or the allegation Lebanese Christians and the some Lebanese and the Arab states accused the Israelis of abetting it, of this massacre, and it was hot, right? This is a hot-button issue. So they sort the students into two groups, one group that, they, that, uh, that aligned themselves with the Arabs or Palestinians and one group that aligned themselves with the Israelis that said that they believed that, you know, they, they supported the Israelis. You know what happened? They showed them the same news report on the thing, two different groups in two different rooms, and they showed them the news report identical. And then they asked them in questions after the news report and said, was it fair? No, it wasn't fair. Who is it biased towards? The other side, clearly biased. The the pro-Palestinian said it was grossly biased towards the Israelis, and the pro-Israeli said it was grossly biased toward the Palestinians. They asked, do you think that if the if the shoe had been on the other foot here, do you think that they would have reported? Absolutely not. This is a rigged, on purpose, total bias. And what reporters have to remember, what we have to remember, what most importantly news consumers have to remember, that is in you, Right. That's in your wiring, that when you hear something that attacks the group or, or finds fault with the group that you identify with, you are going to not say, 
huh, your first re- response is not going to be to say, huh, I should think anew about my worldview and my support for this group. What you're going to say is fake news, right? That's what you're going to say. That's what your brain tells you because being the coalitional instinct among human beings to form tight bonds with the group is how our species has done so so well is because we're good at working together and that's really good. But we have to remember that that even when it's the same story, and this has been proven over and over, there's been so much research on this, some of it trying to disprove it. And what we found in the past 30 years is it works every time. Well, guilty as charged. Yeah, we all for are. Sure. Yeah, for sure. We all are. We have some seriously awesome reader mail. Much of it related to our discussion of the Austrian Pride Whopper. Pride Whopper. Uh, the Pride Whopper. I'm just going to. Happy Pride Month. We are having right Whoppers in. for everyone. The first is from a Burger King franchise owner who has asked that his name, that we withhold his name. We're granting anonymity in the mailbag. We are granting anonymity in the mailbag. Oh he says, Eliana and Chris, my brief moment of irrelevance on your podcast has finally arrived. None of this is useful information per se, so stop reading if you don't wish to learn a bit about Burger King. I, of course, did not stop reading. Read on. I am the CEO of a fast food group that operates 58 Burger Kings. Uh, Some commentary as well as context on the Austrian Pride Whopper. (laughs) Before the facts, I'll note that I enjoyed Chris's accent, which could only have been improved with just a bit more Werner Herzog musings (laughs) upon the the very notion of the Whopper as food of the beast to feed man. (laughs) For context, I worked for the company that owns Burger King, RBI. I was there for about six years before I realized that all of my franchisee counterparts worked less and made more money. The international business is largely structured as a master franchise joint venture deal. Much of the in-country decisions that are made relative to run-of-the-mill marketing decisions don't necessarily go through the corporate ringer for decision even if they are supposed to. You may recall, this was my favorite part, of course, the sex toy box from Burger King Israel a few years ago where they gave out, instead of a kid's Oy meal, vey. they had an adult meal that came with a sex toy. <laughs> the corporate overlords in Miami headquarters were none too pleased upon discovering this in the news. Additionally, Europe is a very strong market for Burger King. What is going on Europeans in Europe? upturned noses notwithstanding. In fact, the Burger King near the Champs-Élysées does something silly like 10 million in euros a year. Less of a surprise was the disastrous women belong in the kitchen ad in the New York times, which was approved by then chief marketing officer, Fernando Machado, who has gone on since then to advance women's rights at dot, dot, dot Activision blizzard (laughs) on Chris's point relative to the Whopper coating. There ain't any coating, just honest American flame broiling. Come on out to Denver, and I shall show you the magic of one of our Duke broilers in action. That is, provided the broiler hasn't broken, I have enough staff to open the restaurant, and nobody has robbed the joint the evening prior, <laughs> but I digress. That was like one of my favorite emails we've ever gotten. I, I love I love this. And I should point out, while Burger King is not well, – well, Burger King has a, a, a lot of colorful locations with interesting clientele – is there still a Burger King on K Street here? I don't know. Is it closed? Colin okay, says Colin no. says closed. I used to go down to that Burger King, and you, uh, you would see a very interesting cross section of Washington D.C. You got a guy like washing his feet with a cup of water at the table over here, homeless person <laughs> over here. You got like a two star general in line, like me, and like whatever. We're just here. We're we're just here. And the other thing that Burger King does right is mayonnaise use totally the whopper on that chicken sandwich yep yep that on that chicken the the like sub style chicken yeah, 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 sandwich yeah, yeah. and the whopper junior is so good yeah and the, the they're unafraid of food lube. Little- they're unafraid to throw the mayo <laughs> on there because there's two kinds of burgers right there's the crispy edged where it's thin people now do a lot of smash, it's a smash burger well that's yeah. a specific thing i made those 
you, Chris and I were just talking before the podcast. He was surprised to hear that I cook. She is. And in fact, I made smash burgers. That Elliot, if, if you, you're going to knock me over with a feather, if you tell me that Eliana Johnson is the cook, because your husband is, he seems creative. He seems like he would love the artistry of the kitchen and he like be really into it. He is really creative, but um, he's, he's risk averse. And uh, so he, and yet like, he married you. nervous about, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> sure bet. Ride sure the lightning, bet, Patrick, yeah. get out there. So he doesn't like to, like with cooking, it's like, oh, the measurements, you know, it's, it's not an exact science. And uh, so he doesn't like to like take chances like that. And so, yeah, I like I cook. Well, I think that's awesome. He reminds me of my sister Jenny, who I'll make something, and she'll say, "Ooh, can I get the recipe for that?" And I'm like, "What oh, recipe? Yeah. What recipe do you think that I'm like? I don't know. I put some Worcestershire sauce in it, or maybe it was hot sauce. I don't remember. I was doing it at the time. I don't know. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you are. You are there. I just would not have pictured you there. And now I want you to cook for me. I want to be invited I over will. now." To enjoy. We gotta do that. Yeah, we gotta and make it happen. We can like put up pictures of a wretched summit. A wretched summit. Okay, the next reader mail is from Natalie, who says, "I was glad that you did the story on Austria's Pride Whopper, <laughs> if only to hear Chris discuss food. I admire a man who can so readily answer which part of the bun he would prefer for the Whopper." Chris was right that the Austrians are better than Burger King. Sure, Austria's <laughs> pastries are the best in the world, and its cafe culture is the height of Western civilization. But if one really wants something special that is also quick, the Kassenkreiner mm-hmm. is far superior to the Whopper and can be purchased on the street. Given what I have heard Chris say about food in the past, I think he would love the Kassenkreiner. One end of a crusty roll is cut off and then the roll is impaled. Mustard is squirted into the bread before a sausage with melted cheese throughout is stuffed into the roll. The small piece of the roll that was cut off caps this delicacy. And she closes, Auf Wiedersehen. And, Natalie, if you don't think that I have eaten a Kassenkreiner, if you don't think that I have had that, you are crazy. You think, how long How long before I was in a Germanic country was before I ate such a thing? And a pro-sausage, pro-meat culture that the Germans and Austrians enjoy, I enjoy. The Steierwald ain't Scottish. I'm, I'm very little German, but I love Germany. I love Austria. I love the food. I love the enthusiasm. You know, there's a great German word. One of my favorites is Festessen. And Festessen is, fe- it, it would be festive eating or a festival of eating, a celebration. So for you that it's like more than a feast, it's a celebration. Uh, so the Festessen idea of food and German excitement about food. I'm I can getting definitely banquet relate to. when I Googled it. Yeah, but a it's the banquet. But, but festessen, like a banquet is good. Festessen, like we are, it's a celebration of food. I'm in. I'm in. Finally, our mm. last mail piece in the mailbag. You take this one. Okay. From Kevin, Eliana, and Chris, love your fun and informative podcast. The, the former mayor of Auburn. Here's my question. I served a small town mayor. And city council member in California at council sessions, there was always a reporter from the town's newspaper. Good. But over the years, the paper reduced publication from five days to two days a week, and the reporters stopped coming to the sessions. That's not good. That's my comment. Because because of the loss of classifieds due to the Internet, the newspaper couldn't pay their one or two reporters very much, and the 21-year-olds who didn't know much about how government worked rotated in and out, Seeking a better paying job. Yes, true. You and you and a lot of cities in America. Meanwhile, local governments have created taxpayer-funded PR departments that churn out press releases and that are cut and pasted in the local newspaper. Yes, woof. Residents only get a vanilla version of what their local government is doing with their tax dollars. Yes. I'm concerned about the loss of accountability of our local governments without independent and strong local newspapers. Did I write this? Did I write this in myself? I read in The Economist magazine that the, that two-thirds of the counties in the U.S., there is no local newspaper. Without sunshine on local government decisions, special interest groups that contract with local government and employee unions win a large share of revenue that local taxpayers lose when, for instance, there is enough money to pave the streets and fix the sidewalks. Should local newspapers be nonprofits to save money? Any thoughts on what to do? says Kevin Hanley of Pacific Grove, California, former mayor of Auburn, California. Well, Mr. Mayor, here's the deal. 
a lot of these newspapers are already not profitable. <laughs> this is a very much good news. This is very much a bad news, good news kind of story. So we definitely, I think, have hit bottom. Small market local news is really important. I would encourage everyone to pre-order Broken News, my forthcoming book from the Center Street, and it's going to be great. And I spend a lot of time talking about this stuff. And here's what is one of the statistics I learned that was most surprising. They researchers were able to prove that the cost of bond issuance. So you you're familiar, Eliana, with how municipalities issue bonds. They go to somebody like Goldman or wherever and say, we want to issue a bond. And they say, okay, we'll do it. We're going to take a cut. And how much money you can raise and how much interest you have to pay on it depends on basically the credit rating and credit worthiness of your city. The cost of every point, it was something like $500,000 more for every borrowing point for communities that had lost a newspaper. Why? Because no one's watching, right? And bad fiscal decisions get made, credit worthiness declines, the, the balance sheet gets worse and worse. The, you know the story of, and I mentioned this in the book, you know the, the ring of Gyges in Plato, Plato's brother tells the story of Gyges that, who can put the ring on to become invisible. Mm-hmm. And he uses it, the, it's in, in the story is, if people can, if people are unseen, they will try to do good things for themselves and their friends. That's what, that is what human nature is like. And it's true. And the people who are doing these things in these communities probably don't think they're doing the wrong thing. They probably think they're doing the right thing. But without the fear that they will be observed and that someone will call them to account, they waste people's money and they don't, they don't have the right set of inputs. And there are, are a lot of things that are happening right now to make local news maybe viable again. But if it's going to be an – well, how about this? Mr. Mayor, wait for my kicker today and maybe you'll have reason for optimism. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to our favorite items of the week, where I am forced to say something nice, but Chris leads by example. What do you got, Chris? Here's the Pointer Institute, pointer.org, with a cool story. Pairing college journalism students with news outlets may be the key to solving the local news crisis. And it here it's it's encouraging. In Nebraska, more than half of the reporters covering the state capitol are student journalists, thanks in part to a Nebraska news service from the University of Nebraska's Journalism School. In Oglethorpe, Georgia, the local newspaper is entirely produced by University of Georgia journalism class. And if you live in California, you can read higher ed news that's produced by students from within the university system through the CalMatters College Beat. These are all examples of what researchers at the University of Vermont are calling news academic partnerships. Efforts on behalf of universities, journalism schools, individual professors, or local media outlets to employ student journalists to cover local news. And today, I think this is today, uh, the University of Vermont officially launches its Center for Community News, whose mission is to inspire and enable collaborations between local media outlets and students. And I say, here, here, this is good. We need, young reporters need local news experience. Local areas need coverage. I know this doesn't address the mayor's concern about 21-year-olds rotating through. I know. But I was once a rotating through 21-year-old. We got to start somewhere. We got to do it somewhere. So I really think that this idea of providing journalists so that they're getting their start in these small markets, which makes them better as they move on in their careers and is good for these small markets. So good for you, University of Vermont. Play a fish song in their honor. My favorite item of the week was in the Wall Street Journal, and I loved the headline, and it was packed with memorable details. Uh, The headline, and the article is by Sabira Chowdhury. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. One grocer wanted to give up plastic, period. It got rotting bananas. Iceland Foods, a well-known supermarket chain in the UK, is discovering just how difficult it is to eliminate plastic from its shelves. We are not going... From A to Z, like a flip of a switch. And it is about the difficulty, of, obviously, of eliminating the environmentalist impulse to eliminate plastic from grocery stores. This was my favorite quote. When one of the best-known supermarket chains in the UK decided to remove plastic from its products, it hadn't anticipated a spike in shoplifting. 
Yet that's what happened when Iceland Foods Limited started selling steak in recyclable paper trays. Some customers bent the pliable containers in half and stuffed them down their trousers. We've, all seen, we've said, all seen Animal House. <laughs> Such theft wasn't as easy when the steaks came wrapped in more rigid plastic packaging. Says, when Iceland wrapped bananas in paper bands instead of plastic bags, the fruit rotted more cl- quickly or snapped off. When it packed bread in opaque paper bags, sales fell as shoppers balked at buying something they couldn't see. When it punched holes in paper bags filled with potatoes to make the contents more visible, they ripped. Awesome piece. I loved it. Packed, and again, packed with detail. Love it because you want to make stories like that great. You got to pack them with detail, and and they certainly did. It was awesome. You're awesome. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Please send us more notes about Burger King or (laughs) anything else on your mind. Or whatever, or whatever. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a six-star review. Mm -hmm. Just search for Wretches. 